So we want to welcome you this morning. Um, we are in the middle of a series called Kings. It's actually the second piece of the series. We're going through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, which is a big chunk of the scriptures uh, and goes through the kingship period of the Israelite people. And so uh, if you brought a Bible with you here today, please turn to First Samuel chapter 13. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. Um, grab a pew Bible in front of you uh, and... That is what I'm using as well, and so you'll be right along with me, and it is on page 234, so you can skip the table of contents and go right to 234 if you need to. When I first came here, uh, and Eric was uh, doing our, uh, our online stuff, he was, he was doing our sermon material, he would shoot me a text every Sunday, and he'd ask the question, you know, what's the title of your sermon? And I would say, uh, Hebrews 12. I don't know, whatever I preached, whatever text it was, no creativity at all in names. And so I'm super proud this week because I have a name. He no longer does the naming, so it doesn't even matter. But, but uh, I'm super proud of the name this week. Uh, the grievous sin of practicality is our title this morning, and, and hopefully that will become very clear as to why that's the title and why that's a theme and, and, why, and why that matters. So um, as we open up our Bibles and looking at First uh, Samuel 13, I want to begin by reading the first verse, and then we'll kind of go back. Uh, through it. So it says uh, here, Saul lived one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent home uh, to his tent. So if you remember last week, there was uh, a great battle. So this is kind of a map of the territory that, that, uh, of the kingdom during the reign of Saul. And remember that all of these different areas, even the area that's not in the red line, is area even along the coast that was given to them uh, by God, but they haven't taken over that area. And so last week we talked about uh, an attack that came from Ammon here and went up to Jabesh Gilead, and they repelled the attack and were able to, um, were able to escape. Um, and so we're talking about this area right down here, and we'll zoom in again, uh, here down at Michmash, which is just kind of fun to say, isn't it? Michmash. I just kept saying it over and over again, Michmash, Michmash. So what we see here in this, in this verse here is that Saul has kept 3,000 people that came out to fight against Ammon and drive them back across the Jordan. And he's keeping 2,000 with him at Michmash and the other 1,000 go with his son, Jonathan. I want you to notice right there how the uh, action of Saul here fulfills exactly what the prophet Samuel would happen way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, I know that was a long time ago, but if you remember in 1, chapter, uh, or in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people came to Samuel because they didn't have a king before this. God was their king. They had no other king. It was just God. And the people come to Samuel and they say, give us a king so that we can be like all the other nations. They all got kings. Why don't we have a king? Like, we want to be a legit nation. And so if you're a legit nation, what do you need? King. Good. Some of you are awake. That's good. Uh, a king. And so they, 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 they ask for this, and Samuel says, fine, we'll give you a king, but this is what will happen if you get a king. He will take your sons, and he will appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to, be his, his, to run before his chariots, to be his foot soldiers, like his army, right? And then he'll, he'll take and he'll appoint for himself uh, of, of the thousands 
commanders of the thousands, and then another more sons of, to be commanders over the fifties, and then and then what do what do soldiers need? Food, right? You got to have food, and so he's going to take more of your sons to do what? To plow his ground and reap the harvest, and then what else do they need for war? Swords, weapons, chariots. He'll take more of your sons to make implements of war, and then even more of your sons to make. Uh, to, to make up the chariots, to make equipment for his chariots. And so all of this is happening. Instead of having your sons at home farming and, and, and doing their priestly, doing all the different things that need to be done, they're going to be uh, taken and conscripted by your king because if you've got a king, you've got to have an army. Legit nations have what? They have kings and they have armies. And yet this is never a part of God's plan. This is never a part of God's plan for them to have an army. And it's very interesting that this is instantly what they want. Instead of having a well-armed militia, they want a military-industrial complex. That's what the king wants. Now, why does that matter? Why is God resistant to the notion of having armies? Well, it, it, it is, after all, the most practical thing if you want to defend your nation to have an army. And so it makes sense that the king would want an army, and it makes sense that the people would want a king and an army to protect them. But God doesn't seem to want those things. Why? Why? Well, because it moves God one more step back. You've removed him from the kingship. You pushed him one step back. And now you want your own army one step back. The people said we can rule ourselves very well, thank you. And we can defend ourselves very well, thank you. And if we can defend ourselves very well, thank you, then why do you need a God to knock down the walls of Jericho? And why do you need a God to cast down stones upon the the Canaanite kings? Why do you need a God to fight for you if you can do it yourself? And see, this is what we're going to see over and over and over again, not just in the life of Saul, but in the life of all the kings of Israel. If you want to go it yourself, if you want to do it yourself, God is happy to let you. And you don't want that. And we're going to see that live itself and play itself out as we see this grievous sin of practicality not only sink into the life of Saul the king, but inside of all of the people of Israel. So there's an army of 3,000, 2,000 are at Michmash, uh, and then and then 1,000 are in Gibeah. And it, it makes sense that if you've got an army, what do you want to do with it? Fight, right? That's what armies are for, right? You want to fight. And when Jonathan takes this, this army, this thousand that he's got, and he goes uh, to Keba because there is a Philistine outpost there. The Philistines have taken over, and if you remember, um, Saul and, and, and Jonathan, they're Benjaminites, and this is the territory of Benjamin. Um, the territory we're talking about is right here. And this is the territory of Benjamin. And here at Geba, right in the center of it, they've got a Philistine outpost. And Jonathan says, well, that's no good, right? We've got to get rid of those guys. We've got to push them out. We've already kicked the Ammonites out of our land. Now it only makes sense that we go to war. And, and he does successfully. He takes his men, and they defeat the Philistines, and they kick them out of their territory. And whatever ones might have been left alive goes scurrying back over here to the Philistine uh, territory, and we read here in the text that, that uh, Saul blows the trumpet in verse 3. He blows the trumpet and he says, let Israel hear that we are taking our land back. Now, if you're a good patriot, what do you say? Yeah. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, this is like, we're cheering, we're excited. We're doing what we knew we could do if God would just back up and let us do it. Because you notice something important here, and some of you might not um, be as familiar with the scriptures, and that, that's okay. Uh, but if you are familiar with the scriptures, notice something missing there in verse 3. What's missing there in verse 3? Something that had always happened before, or usually happened before, not always, but usually happened before, but is absent who have they failed to consult? God, absent completely. Jonathan says, have army, will travel, right? And that's what they do. They go and they take over that land. They don't ask, should we do this, Lord? They don't ask, is this within your will, Lord? They don't ask, is this good, Lord? Because what's happened now is they've defined good for themselves. Good is, of course, what is good for the people as we see it. The problem is, God often has very different views about what good is than you or I or Israel here in this. And it makes a lot of sense that they would use this army, they'd get rid of these people, they'd kick them out, and, and, and then they'd blow the trumpet and they'd rally the troops and, and everyone would be rejoicing and Saul's power and prestige would grow. Everything here makes a whole lot of sense until all of a sudden it doesn't. Now how many troops did Israel have again? 3,000, good, 3,000. Verse four, the Israelites heard of this. They heard that Saul had defeated the the garrison of the Philistines and then also that Israel had become a stench in the noses of the Philistines. And the people called out. So all these people are doing this successful. They're rallying around Saul down at Gilgal. But then, verse five, the Philistines muster to fight with Israel. And dropping out of hyperspace, all of the sudden, <laughs> 30,000 star destroyers, 6,000 frigates, and TIE fighters so thick you can't see the stars anymore. I mean, this is, this is what he isn't facing. The entire imperial army is facing now Saul. How many did he have again? I forgot. 3,000, and he's facing at least 36,000 heavy, heavy groups, not to mention all of the smaller, smaller groups. And Saul might have in this moment experienced some regret. Perhaps this wasn't the best choice we could have have made. Maybe it's the, the law of unintended consequences, right? We thought it was a really good idea, and then all of a sudden, it wasn't a really good idea. We'll bring you back to the, to the map here so you can see what's going on. And so what happens, we read in verse 6, when the Israelites saw that they were in trouble, they were pressed hard. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and they cracked open the tombs to hide with the dead and they, they shimmied down those ropes down into wells and cisterns into wells and they hid for their lives because 3,000 against 36,000 plus not great odds right not great I mean you don't have to know much about military strategy to know this is not a battle to fight in fact we read that some of them say forget it and they just hightail it over here across the Jordan River says that they ran to Gad and and, and to Gilead they just they, they flee the whole area they just get out of there and Saul and Gil, is still at Gilgal, um, which is, again, down here. And all of the people are trembling. They're trembling. 
And that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Verse 8 then opens up with kind of this, this sets the story up. And here we see Saul come uh, to a terrible, uh, the beginning of a terrible end. Um, to have that foreshadowing there for us, where we see the sin of practicality take root and take over. In verse 8, we read that he waited seven days, that is Saul, waited seven days for the time appointed to him by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. Now, we don't have a lot of backstory here. And so we're not really sure exactly what's going on as far as what the conversation between him and Samuel looked like. But what we see here is at some point, Saul realizes, I think now I should consult the Lord. And Samuel says, I think you should wait a week. Now, I just want you to sit there for a second, because we're talking about a handful of miles between 36,000 plus troops. I mean, they could, in a day or two's march, be at Saul's neck. And what does Samuel say? Wait. And what does Saul want to do? Something. Like, I don't care. Take a pick. But we can't wait. There is no time to wait. We need a word from God now. Let's stop here for some application for a second. Because wouldn't it have been awesome for them to avoid this mess in the first place? I I love the story of Saul because this is so, I mean, Laura will attest, I am impulsive. Like, somebody comes with a good idea, okay, let's do it now. Paul is also well aware of me being impulsive. And so I am am the worst at patience. I'm awful at it. I don't pray for it. Um, I got that down. I don't pray for it. But I, I, I'm just really terrible at that patience uh, thing because I, I get an idea or I, I, I'm faced with the challenge or I'm faced with the question or I'm faced with the problem and I want to do it. Okay, let's do it. Fix it, be done with it, and move on. And yet that doesn't seem to be the way God works, does it? It doesn't seem to be the way God works at all. In fact, we could do ourselves a whole lot of good if we would avoid the mess of making the decisions without God. And so I want to give you some very practical, um, really easy to follow. I even made it three Ps. Look at that. Like, I'm almost a legit preacher. <laughs> almost. Uh, the first is prayer, and that's pretty straightforward. I, I, I know that we all are kind of on board with that. You understand this is giving our prayers and our petitions and our requests and making them known to God because, as we read a few weeks ago, He cares for you. He wants to hear what you're wrestling with, what the problem is, even though he knows it, right? The omniscient God, the God who knows all things from beginning to end, he, he knows it, but he wants to hear from you. He wants you to pour out your heart to him. Included in prayer as well as I, I would include worship. You remember the Lord's Prayer? Um, uh, our Father who art in heaven, like that, to put God in heaven, to put him in the place of throne, the throne of God, the God who is king over everything. God uh, who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are all words of worship. Uh, They are going before what they should have done and what we should do is go before God in prayer and in worship and give those needs that we have over to God. The second thing is priests, which 
um, just fits the P, but is also very good because we, we don't believe in priesthood as you might think of priests in terms of like kind of maybe Roman Catholicism or, or Eastern Orthodoxy or something like that. But rather in First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says that we are a holy nation. We are a kingdom of priests. If you are a Christian here today, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. The Spirit is dwelling in you and, and speaking to you, and you are an agent. And so what should we do? After we seek through prayer God's will and speaking to God, we should go to other mature Christians who we trust. And that whole sentence must apply, right? Other mature, so some Christians are not mature, and you don't want to ask them anything. Let them mature a little. And you don't want to go to your friends who have no spirit in them at all. And their priorities are different from you. They might give you some good advice, but it isn't rooted in scripture or in prayer and worship, right? So mature Christian friends whom you trust, go to them and share with them their problem and seek the Lord together in prayer. And then finally, patience, um, which is to say that God will not give you an answer on your timetable. Uh, Jeremiah, the great prophet, so great, he's got a whole book named after him in the Bible, right? Wanted a word from the Lord and God made him wait 10 days. Elijah the great prophet of God. I mean, he's doing all kinds of crazy miracles, all kinds of things God's using him for. He needs a word from the Lord, and the Lord makes him wait 40 days. Well, Jeremiah is better than me, and so is Elijah, and so I imagine he'll make it longer, right? We need to wait for God to open and to shut doors. We need to be patient and waiting for him to work. And the only way that we're going to avoid the messes of life is if we follow a process like this. Well, there are two kinds of sacrifices that are given to us here. There is the burnt offerings, he says, which are for worship, and the peace offerings, which are to write a relationship between you and God. And so he wants to offer the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. But who in the Old Testament, for those of you who are old pros, who in the Old Testament has the legitimate authority to make a sacrifice? Priests. And Saul is what? Not a priest. Very good. Not a priest. And so Saul comes to this problem. Though, What's Saul's problem in this text? Verse 8. And the people were scattering. Right? The people are starting to leave. And what does Saul need if he's going to fight 36,000 plus stormtroopers? Men, right? He needs his army. And they're starting to sort of fly away. And so he's faced with this dilemma, this very practical, right now problem. What am I going to do? We are about to get slaughtered by these Philistines. They are angry. We smell like poop in their nose. And they want to flush us, right? They're a stench. What are we going to do? And so Saul says, bring me the burnt offerings. Bring me the peace offerings. And in verse 9 we read, he offered the burnt offerings offerings couldn't have been a more practical move sacrifice it keep the people set at least we'll have the army that we've got here and now couldn't have been more practical and can you put yourself in Saul's shoes for a moment doesn't that feel right I mean after all like God's nice isn't he like he's love he's patient he's gonna he's gonna forgive our sins it's not a God understands it's not a big deal Right? I mean, that's, how many of you have thought that before in your life? 
How many have you of you, and, and I, I don't expect you to raise your hands, but how many of you before you've sinned have thought that before in your life? Because I can tell you the truth, I have. We use this all the time. But God's patient, God, God will forgive it. You know, Jesus cross, all that kind of stuff. I'll say a prayer when we're done. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. And this is the attitude that the church has taken. So I'm, forget, if you're not a Christian here today, just kind of, you know, uh, just listen in. But this is mainly for the, this is the attitude the church has taken to the commands and will of God. We have become lackadaisical in how we follow and obey the one living God. I was reading, I wasn't reading, I'm sorry. I was not sleeping, that's what I was doing. They aren't similar at all, I don't know. Anyway, I was, I was not sleeping Saturday, I was having a hard time, I couldn't fall asleep, and uh, I've been having um, bouts of insomnia lately, and so I, was, I, I turned on my trusty um, Bible app, and I turned on Luke, and I was just, gonna, I was just laying there listening and to Luke, and there's this really interesting story where Jesus is standing around, and, and oftentimes when we're reading the situation, Jesus is like the actor, he's like the one that, like he's the, he's the one that does the thing. In this one, Jesus is sitting back, and the people are telling him stories, and Jesus stops them. And they're telling a story, one of the stories that's going around is a story of this tower in the south of Jerusalem, the Tower of Salome, which collapses and it kills like 18 people. And so for like today, if we're equivalent today, we would say like some place in, uh, some monument in Washington, D.C. falls over and kills, you know, whatever politicians you don't like, I don't know, take your pick, whoever it is for you. And you'd be like, well, it couldn't happen to nicer guys, right? You know, you're just gonna, you're like, well, you know, we, we know those kinds of people and those, those high and mighty, you know, those rich dudes, those politicians in Jerusalem, the thing fell. And Jesus stops them dead in their tracks. You know what he says? He says, you think, you're, you think those people are worse sinners than you? He says, if you don't repent as well, you will also perish. That Jesus, whose hippie flowers and love, I'm not sure where they got that from. But in the scriptures, he's very serious and one of the things that we have as a church have become, I, I think, in the modern age, less and less and less, it is serious about God. And we allow these excuses to kind of filter into our minds and thinking that we can sort of pacify God or not worry about God or God will get over it. And yet in the scriptures we see there are plenty of times where God doesn't get over it. In fact, what happens here? is that Saul is facing a very grievous problem, and he is afraid. You would be afraid too, right? I mean, how many of you would be afraid with Saul? Be afraid with Saul. You'd be afraid if you weren't even with Saul, and you were just one of his foot soldiers, one of the guys there. You're, you're terrified because the Philistines are coming, and so you have two fears at your doorstep. You have the Philistines, and you have God. Which one do you fear more? Which one do you fear more? Because I think if we're honest, if we're really honest this morning, we fear the Philistines more. We fear so many things in life. What's your Philistine? What is it? What's the army that's facing you? You fear losing the job, losing the friend, losing the partner, losing the spouse, losing the boyfriend, the girlfriend, losing your children. What are you afraid of? We're afraid of so many things. We're afraid of poverty and loneliness. We're afraid of being embarrassed so we don't share the gospel. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of pain. The thing I think we're most afraid of here in America today, boredom. Boredom. We're so afraid that we fill our lives and we do all kinds of things and we're afraid of everything around us except for the thing that matters, God. 
God. And what does this cause for Saul? Saul does the practical move. And Samuel shows up like at that moment. It's like dad coming home like right as you like you know, threw that ball through the window or whatever. It's like he comes right home at that moment and catches him red-handed, literally red-handed with sacrifices on the altar. And Samuel says, what have you done? What have you done? And Saul explains very rationally. I love this. Very rationally, very practically. He says, when I saw the people scattering from me, so the people are scattering, first excuse, and you did not come in the days that were appointed, and that the Philistines, they'd, they'd mustered at Michmash. I mean, like we could throw a rock and hit that. I can spit and hit that city, man. They're there. And I said, well, now the Philistines are going to come down against us at Gilgal. And third, or fourth, count, fourth, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. I love how he throws the like, religion in at the end, right? I mean, isn't that great? Right? Uh, well, you know, we got all these other things. And, and you know, I haven't prayed yet. So here we go. So I forced myself. I forced myself. To make the offer. I mean, that's such a good list of excuses. I'm ready to let him off the hook. Can I get a witness, right? I mean, this is good. This is a good line of reasoning. He has every reason in the world except for one. God told him not to. God told him not to. Samuel says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your reign over Israel forever. Like, you would be, you'd be set. Like, if your heart was committed, if your fear was directed at God, and all the Philistines all around, they could be swarming and surrounding you, but only God was in your eyes. You would be set forever. But now what? Your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. Remember the word heart in the Bible often means not like emotion, the way we kind of use it very often here in America, but it, it means like will, direction. Somebody whose heart is directed towards God. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. How many times did you see the word commanded there? Over and over and over again, how often do we think of God as the one who commands? The God who, who commands us. Now, oftentimes we, we conceive of God as just this God of love. I saw this in a billboard. I think it was on, on um, Sprinkle. It says, love does not judge. <laughs> really? Love does not judge. Well, God is love, but he isn't love necessarily as we conceive of it in our modern framework. Love is a philosophical description. What, is it, what does it look like to love? What is the action of love? And, 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 and oftentimes, instead of thinking of a love that is firm and securely fit, fit inside of the kingship of God, we sit it inside of a romantic relationship. We have love uh, often for uh, um, our parents, but your parents command you, don't they? We have love 
uh, for uh, a general in the battle, right? Why? Because they have the, the broader picture. We have love for, for flags. Like we have this sense of love that isn't tied to a romantic relationship. And that's what we need to get out of our minds. We need to recognize that God is king. He is sovereign over all the earth, over all creation. And he commands. Now, God is love. He loves so much that he gives you his commands, He loves you so much that he hides nothing. He loves you so much that he recognizes that in the past you have lived in ways of sin. And so he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins so that you could walk in a newness of life. But he expects those of you who would be set underneath his rule and reign, who would be established forever in eternal life in the kingdom of God, he expects that you will obey the commands. That you will hear the commands. And that your love of God will trump your love of self. And when you see a way that looks good to you, you will stop and say, for love of God and for God's great love and commanding over me is this in keeping with his heart that is his will. And the more we direct our lives after that perspective and way of life, the more we will avoid the kind of messes we find ourselves in and the more we will find faithfulness to God. See, most of the time, God is not practical. You get that, right? Was it practical for them to march around the walls of Jericho seven times? Like, that's not practical. That's insanity, Like, as the people of Jericho, and you're looking down at the Israelites who are marching around the walls of Jericho, you must have just been like, what are these idiots doing? I mean, imagine from that perspective, what are these people doing? Imagine Pharaoh. Pharaoh is sitting on his throne. I mean, Egypt is the most mighty empire in the entire world. Imagine how much gold is in that room. And Pharaoh is sitting on this throne, and a dude walks up barefoot with a staff in his hand, and he says, let all your slaves go. What? I mean, he didn't even, Moses was so low in his eyes, he didn't even bother killing him. Like, that's how low Moses, normally you just kill your enemies if you're the emperor of the world. He didn't even bother killing him. That's how insane he thought Moses was. And what did God do with Moses? And the more that we move in ways that seem good to us, practical, practical to us, the more we will find ourselves separating ourselves from God because God does not want you to win the battle. He wants to win the battle with you, for you, sometimes through you. When was Jesus practical? Was Jesus practical when he said, um, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not store up for yourselves 401ks. Do not buy for yourselves things that are collectibles that you can sell later on. Do not, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where, <coughs> where moth and rust destroy and thieves break into steel. Is that, is that practical? It says, uh, love your enemies. If a man forces you to go one mile, go with him two. If he slaps you on one cheek, turn the other one. Is that practical? If he says, blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth, is that practical? Is the Jesus who walks on water, who goes to a cross to win his people, is that uh, practical? 
No, what we have seen in God, all the way from Genesis and his calling to Abraham, all the way to Jesus and his death and resurrection, all the way to his choosing us to be his people and to walk in his ways. He has never used practicality as a defining way of, of, of acting in the world. And so what I'm encouraging you guys to do, aside from those three Ps, prayer, priests, and patience, right? Got that? Prayers, priests, and patience. What I'm calling you to do is to begin viewing the world differently. To look at Jesus seriously, to take God seriously. And as we've gone through this and we seek increasingly and over and over again this call to love and to fear God, to see in him the one who can rescue, the one who can save, to set yourself apart from that and to turn your eyes, as the song says, toward Jesus, who can deliver, who can save, who can rescue and the more that you turn yourself away from things that are, are, are practical, the, th- the, the, the way that you think you ought to solve that problem, the more you turn yourself toward Jesus, the more chances we are to see signs and wonders. Because as soon as they got armies, the signs and wonders began to dwindle and fall off. But when they depended on God, wonders. And we want to see those wonders, don't we? And so as we come to a conclusion today, I just, I'd like you to take a minute as we sing this final song of praise to our God and to put yourself and ask the question, how can I give to God more of my love and my trust and my fear and my devotion and begin to set aside more and more my own thoughts toward what is good and right through prayer, through priests, and through patience. Let's stand as we sing.